so today we will be finishing this class uh, with Galatians 6, the shortest chapter, shortest chapter in the letter, and uh, maybe the least complicated. So if all goes well, I should even have some time left for questions at the end. Um, but, uh, but Galatians 6 is where we'll be at today. So let me go ahead and uh, pray for us, and then we'll get started with the lesson. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this time that we have set aside for you to worship you and uh, to study your word and to learn from it. We ask that you would help us as we endeavor to learn from your word, that you would help us to understand it, to interpret it rightly, and that you would indeed reveal yourself to us through, through the scriptures. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, okay, so before I jump straight into chapter 6, seeing how this is the last uh, lesson that we'll have in, in Galatians, I thought it might be good to uh, recap a little bit of what we've seen from the very beginning of the letter. And we've seen as we've gone through this, through all six chapters, that Paul's central emphasis throughout this letter has been on God's grace, this, uh, the idea of God's grace. Uh, which Paul defines as the gift of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, grace is a word practically synonymous with gift in the ancient world, and so to speak of the grace of God is to speak of the gift of God, and Paul specifically means the gift of God given to us through Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 2, Verses 15 through 21, we came to what is probably, what could really be considered Paul's thesis statement in this letter. And there he, sa he says that we are justified by God's grace uh, through faith in Christ alone. Uh, we're justified as a gift, in other words, through faith in Christ, not by uh, any achievement of our own, not by any human status or human standard of measurement, but purely by the gift of God. And so, in 328, we saw, we began to see there how grace also recon reconfigures how we construe value and worth um, in our own lives and how we construe value and worth in others. Uh, because if justification, if being right with God is actually based on purely a gift of God in Jesus Christ and not on any status or quality or achievement of our own, then that has to fundamentally uh, reconfigure how we think about worth in the first place. Worth comes from, uh, comes from God as a gift and not from anything that we do uh, or, can, or can claim for ourselves. And that also then means that we are also effectively on equal footing with one another since we are all equally void of um, bragging rights for ourselves on the one hand, um, but also equally loved by God who gives us this gift. And so then uh, last week as we got to chapter 5, we began to uh, get to the part of the letter where Paul transitions to talking about more about these practical implications of grace in the life of uh, the life of the individual believer and in uh, the church and in the community as a whole. Um, and we saw in chapter 5 specifically that the Christian life, uh, not only are we justified by grace, but the, con the, the con Christian life as it continues can only be lived by grace specifically through the gift 
of the Holy Spirit that is given to us. So grace isn't just how we are initially justified, it's also how we continue to live the Christian life, and without it, the Christian life is actually impossible. Um, so we've seen throughout this letter then that if grace is first of all a vertical gift that affects our vertical relationship from God to us, it is also secondly a horizontal gift that is to be practiced between us as the, as the body of Christ. So in other words, Christ's gift of himself for us becomes the model for recipients of that gift uh, as far as how they should behave toward one another. And so that, that gets us up to where we're at in chapter 6. But, uh, but real quick, since I've been talking about uh, this subject of grace and how Paul defines grace, it might actually be helpful to revisit uh, the very beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where Paul first defines grace for us. Because a lot of what he says here will come into play again before the letter ends. Going back to chapter 1, verse 3, this is Paul's opening greeting to the Galatians, and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might pull us out of the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I unpacked that uh, sentence a little bit in our uh, first week of this class, but uh, just to recap that definition a little bit, uh, we see at least four components uh, in Paul's definition of grace in these three verses. Uh, for Paul, grace is, and grace as he speaks about it throughout this letter, is first of all the gift of Jesus Christ, who was secondly given on account of our sins, third, in order to deliver us from the present world, and fourth, and this is really where he's going in chapter 6, to transform us into creatures of praise. Uh, we see that in verse 5 specifically, this doxology, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Paul has a uh, logical progression in these first three verses where the grace that we have received on account of our sins, the grace that delivers us from the present evil age, ultimately uh, it has its end goal in praise, in doxology, in glory given to God. Um, and so there, there is a progression here where Paul seems to envision grace ultimately transforming us from what we are now into continually, or what we were before Christ, um, into continually more so and more so creatures of praise. Uh, so with that, I'll go ahead and take us to chapter 6 and... Uh, we'll see how that last point especially plays out in this final chapter. Um, I think what I will do here is read one paragraph at a time uh, and then talk about each one individually. But, uh, the, so the first paragraph in chapter 6, the first five verses, read as follows. Brothers, if someone is found out in some transgression, then you, the spiritual ones, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, examining yourselves lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fill the law of Christ to the full. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he is deceiving himself. But let each one test his own work, and then he will have a reason to boast to himself alone and not to someone else for each one will have to bear his own load. 
Okay, so I'll pause right there. Um, one of the things that we are seeing right here in this, in this first paragraph is uh, how grace plays out in community. Uh, what does grace look like when it becomes uh, something that is practiced within the church um, between one another? And you'll notice there's a lot of one another type language, communal language that's used right away in this paragraph, especially in the, in the sentence that begins, bear one another's burdens. Um, but right from the get-go here in verse 1, uh, what does grace look like in practice in a community? Well, the first thing that Paul notes here is, is essentially looking out for one another. If someone is found out in some transgressions, then you, the spiritual ones, um, meaning basically people of the Holy Spirit, um, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, uh, examining yourselves lest you also be tempted. But it's, not, it's also not just looking out for one another. Uh, it's not just pointing out one another's faults, but the emphasis in this sentence really falls at the tail end on the ideas of gentleness and also examining yourselves, in other words, humility. So, grace in practice in community looks like, on the one hand, yes, um, uh, looking out for one another, uh, caring for one another precisely by, um, by, by taking care when you see a brother or sister who, um, who is struggling uh, or is caught in some uh, sin, dealing with some sin, but, uh, but grace also mandates that we handle that with gentleness and humility precisely because we realize that there is no fundamental difference between us and that whatever has happened in someone else's life could just as easily be us. Um, and so gentleness and humility are the real emphasis in that, in that sentence. Uh, as we go further in this paragraph, we see uh, that we are to bear one another's burdens, uh, very clearly stated explicitly um, in verse 2. Uh, and he says that in this way, you will fill the, the law of Christ to the full. This is, in a way, recalling something that he said in the last chapter, in chapter 5, verse 14. There, he said, for the entire law is fulfilled in a single utterance. In this one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he, uh, that idea of fulfilling the law links these two statements in 5.14 and now in 6.2. And so we can kind of take from that that bearing one another's burdens is um, a little, in, in a little bit more practical terms, a little bit more concrete terms, we might say, uh, what Paul means by loving one another. To love one another is to bear one another's burdens. Uh, last week, um, in Pastor Jim's sermon, he mentioned uh, Cain's famous question, am I my brother's keeper? Um, and God doesn't bother to answer uh, the question, um, apparently deeming it not worthy of an answer at that moment. But, um, but the implied answer is yes, and the, and the answer here uh, would be yes. Um, yes, in fact, you are, and that is part of um, grace lived out in community and, and precisely how we fulfill everything that the law was um, intended to do. 
The interesting thing here, though, is that on the one hand, uh, it, this paragraph tells us in verse 2 that we are to bear one another's burdens. Um, at the end of the paragraph in verse 5, it also says, for each one will have to bear his own load. And so, uh, so yes, we look out for one another, we care for one another, we, uh, we bear one another's burdens, but that does not excuse anybody from doing their own part either. Um, this isn't a recipe for uh, what Bonhoeffer would have called uh, cheap grace. Um, at the very heart of this paragraph, though, between verses 2 and 5, what we really see is the practical outworking of what we might call grace realized. Um, in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he is deceiving himself. Um, but let each one test his own work, and then he will have a reason to boast to himself alone and not to someone else. Uh, so what is, this, what is this language of something and nothing about? Well, the terms, uh, well, to the, the idea of thinking of oneself as something versus thinking of oneself as nothing uh, takes on a new life if we remember all the way back to what Paul has had to say about justification in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, and uh, some, of how, uh, some of how he worked out those ideas in chapter 3 as well. Um, uh, again, the fundamental statement uh, made by grace, uh, the, the, the fact that justification is by grace, uh, is that we are all equally deficient on the one hand and yet equally loved by God. Um, this, the statement that justification, that our justification is a gift from God, in Paul's, uh, in, in Paul's explanation in Galatians, uh, it has to be a gift from God because uh, there, there is no human standard, there is no human uh, criteria that could possibly suffice for our justification. Um, but, but that very fact, this fact of our justification being a gift and not something uh, that we can claim as our own doing, um, means that, that as soon as we claim grace, we are also admitting that we are equally deficient um, and equally loved by God. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, if you think you are something, uh, grace, grace says that in, on human terms, uh, by human standards, you are in fact nothing. Uh, so if you think that you are something, you are deceiving yourself. Um, now, obviously, Paul is also clear all the way back in chapter 2 uh, when he speaks of uh, the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. We are not nothing to God, um, but the only thing that makes us more than nothing is precisely that he chooses to love us. There is nothing intrinsic in ourselves uh, as, as fallen sinners um, that allows us to claim to be something. Uh, and so we see right there in the heart of this paragraph in verse 3 the real practical outworking um, of grace lived in community. Um, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he is deceiving himself. And then that sort of naturally takes us to what he's saying in verse 4. Verse 4 is a very awkward verse to try to translate from Greek, and I changed my mind about this um, constantly as I was translating it, and uh, if I did it again, I might do it different. I don't know. Um, and then if I did do it different, I'd probably change it back to this the next day. Um, and, uh, but the idea is, is easier to grasp than maybe uh, the translation 
And the idea here seems to be one of comparison, of comparison to other people. Um, and what is being warned against, perhaps, is uh, not comparing yourselves to others, but rather um, you know, examining your own work, testing your own work. In other words, in a sense, minding your own business, take care, taking care of yourself um, rather than uh, paying more attention to what someone else is or is not doing. Um, which leads us naturally then to what he has to say in verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. Um, and so, uh, so grace lived out in community looks like caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens, but, uh, but not, um, but not uh, indulging in pride um, or, uh, or looking down on others. Um, grace leaves no room for that. So this takes us naturally then to what he has to say in the next paragraph. So let me read this paragraph for us and do the same thing um, and talk through that. So picking up in verse 6, Paul writes, And let the one who is receiving instruction share all good things in common with the one who is giving instruction. Do not be led astray. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. For the... Oh, for the one who, I have a typo there, but for the one who sows in the flesh will reap decay from the flesh, and the one who sows in the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. And do not lose your enthusiasm for doing good, for in not giving up we will reap in the proper season. So then while the season is ours, let us work for the good of all, but especially toward the household of the faith." And so, so picking up in verse 6, this next paragraph, uh, most of this paragraph very obviously has to do with um, the idea of doing good in some way. Um, the, the word good shows up in uh, almost every verse of this paragraph. Uh, it's just absent from the middle. But, um, but so most of this paragraph we can see has to do with the idea of doing good, and, uh, and Paul um, seems to, and he specifically links this idea of doing good versus not. Notice he never says anything about doing evil. It's just a choice between doing good or not doing good in, um, in this paragraph. Uh, but, but he seems to link um, the idea of doing good with living in the Spirit, the idea of living in the Spirit um, and not doing good with living in the flesh. These ideas that he brought up in the last chapter that we saw particularly at the end of chapter 5, uh, especially in verses 7 and 8, he really seems to be building off of what he said in chapter 5, verses 16 through 26 with the works of the flesh and uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, he says, whatever a person sows, he will also reap, for the one who sows in the flesh will reap decay from the flesh, and the one who sows in the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So, this, so, the, so as Paul speaks of doing good, um, doing good here seems to be uh, right in line with, um, almost synonymous with, the idea of living in the Spirit, uh, walking by the Spirit, um, and exercising the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. Um, and, and in there we can see, you know, the, the, um, the basic truth that he brings out in verses 7 and 8 that uh, what you sow is in a very real sense here um, an investment. Uh, can be thought of as an investment. Um, 
and, and so sowing in the flesh versus sowing in the spirit are two different types of investments. Um, and the question is, which one do you want to invest your life in? Uh, the, and the answer that he gives here, um, the implied answer is, is pretty clear. Um, the one who sows in the flesh will reap decay. Uh, why? Because everything that is of the flesh is decaying, is presently perishing. Um, and yet, if you sow in the Spirit, on the other hand, you will reap eternal life because the Spirit is eternal. And, uh, and so, the, uh, the question that Paul um, sort of implicitly poses to us in these verses is, do you want to invest your life in that which is decaying and which is perishing, or do you want to invest your life in uh, that which is eternal and leads to eternal life? Um, but even as he says all of this, uh, all of this in, in this paragraph is really f still framed in this discussion of uh, grace lived out in community. The idea of community, communal terms, frame this entire paragraph. So if we go back up to verse 6, we see uh, Paul says, And let the one who is receiving instruction share all good things in common with the one who is giving instruction. There's this idea of reciprocity, of, of giving and receiving um, uh, within the body of Christ within community and uh, verse, um, you know, in seeing to one another's needs. And then in verse 10, at the end, other end of the paragraph, he says, so then while the season is ours, let us work the good for all, but especially toward the household of the faith. So at both ends of this paragraph, really, you have the idea of not only seeing to one another's needs, but also simply doing good to one another. And so this entire, everything that he has to say here, his entire um, discussion about doing good um, uh, in verses 6 through 10 uh, is, is framed in the context of community, what it means to live as Christian community uh, with one another. So, and what, what this leaves us with is, is a picture here, Paul is painting for us in verses 6 through 10, his picture of what a community founded on the grace of Christ should look like. And his answer is a whole community full of people who consistently pay it forward to one another. Um, seems to be the idea here. Uh, a community founded on grace is a community in which people are um, mutually, uh, reciprocally paying it forward to one another. And if you stop and think about that for a second, about what that would mean, that sounds like a pretty good society to live in, um, and also one that is very much unlike uh, the world at large ever has been in any point in history. Um, but, uh, but if everyone is uh, seeing to one another's needs mutually, if everyone is mutually paying it forward uh, to each other, then you end up with a situation where um, everybody should be pretty well taken care of. Um, and that, and that, is, and that is, it seems to be Paul's, Paul's picture here, his vision for grace, what happens when grace is lived out in community. Um, and this then brings us to what is really Paul's closing paragraph, um, more or less. 
And, and it's in these final verses where I want to spend most of the time in today's lesson, and this is where Paul really uh, wraps up everything that he's been saying in Galatians and brings everything back full circle. So I'll read uh, the rest of uh, chapter 6 for us real quick, starting in verse 11. Paul says, see with, what, uh, see with what large letters I write to you by my own hand. And that's not necessarily bringing the letter full circle, but we'll, get, we'll come back to that. Um, as many as want to put on a good face in the flesh, these are urging you to be circumcised only so that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But as for me, may I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but rather a new creation. And as many as walk in line with this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Henceforth, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Okay, so as I said, uh, for the most part, what Paul is doing in this paragraph is, um, is drawing everything that he has said uh, to a close. Uh, everything comes around full circle here. And, and so naturally, uh, the terms circumcision and uncircumcision reappear, uh, which he's had so much to say about in uh, the previous chapters of this letter. Um, but what we can really think of this paragraph as uh, centering in on the central, parag parag uh, central question that this paragraph is trying to answer is the question, again, of what matters and what doesn't, uh, which has been a question that Paul's kind of been dealing with the entire time in Galatians. Uh, sometimes more directly than others. But the real answer that Paul gives to this two-part question appears when we get to verse 15, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but rather a new creation. Um, so, if we, if, if we think about uh, this question in terms of the answer that Paul gives here, uh, what doesn't matter? What doesn't matter, he says very clearly, is circumcision or uncircumcision, either one. In other words, your earthly human status um, is what doesn't matter. On what does matter, on the other hand, is being a new creation in Christ. Um, you can think of this again as going all the way back to that basic contrast between the human and the divine that Paul set up in the very first verse of this letter. Um, and, and those standards of judgment, those criteria of worth uh, that are purely human, human standards of measurement, um, mean nothing. Uh, what means everything is being a new creation in Christ. Uh, so, and we'll come back to that point and expand that a little bit uh, further, but, but his basic answer to the question of what matters and what does not is that uh, what doesn't matter is your earthly human status. Uh, what does matter is new creation in Christ. But let's go back up for a second to the beginning of this paragraph. Uh, I should just note verse 11 real quick. This is, um, seems kind of uh, out of nowhere um, in a way. But this is something, we see Paul say something along these lines elsewhere also, and this seems to be a reference as we get toward the end of the letter to uh, 
the fact that uh, Paul has his own sort of personal signature, it would seem, which uh, in his personal signature is, is his bad handwriting. Um, and whether that means, as some have, uh, have inferred that Paul may have had bad eyesight, um, whether, whether it's his bad eyesight, I think that's actually probably likely, and, or just plain sloppy handwriting, um, he makes reference to his characteristically large letters that he writes with. In other words, you know this is me. Uh, you know that I'm the one who's writing this because you can tell by the large letters that I write with. Um, so he, uh, so he's, he's getting close to signing off here and throws that line in there to sort of uh, uh, verify that this is in fact him. Um, but, uh, and then he moves on with his, with his argument otherwise. Um, this, uh, this note in here in verse 12, uh, he says, as many as want to put on a good face in the flesh, these are urging you to be circumcised only so that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Um, it's, a, it's, it's interesting. He's, again, talking about uh, the Judaizers, the, the group that his opponents that he's been um, doing battle with throughout this entire letter, um, and saying, you know, they, they want you to be circumcised so that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And that probably needs a little bit of explaining. Uh, the there are a couple possibilities here as far as who the persecutors would be that they're trying to avoid. It could be a reference to persecution from fellow Jews, so we could have Jewish Christians here who are worried about um, being persecuted by uh, non-Christian Jews, um, uh, so that's one possibility. The other possibility is that uh, we could be talking about potential persecution from the Roman state here. One reality of the Roman state since the time of Julius Caesar is that um, Jews, in other words, those who are circumcised, um, had religious freedoms in, in Rome that no other group had. Uh, the Jews were the one religious group in the Roman Empire that was exempt from worshiping the emperor, um, among other things. Uh, that was a favor that Caesar did for them because they once did a favor for him when they helped him defeat Pompey. Um, and but that but that was a uh, a forever decree, so to speak, and and it meant that um, that with circumcision, with being a member of the uh, Jewish community, you you had certain um, religious freedoms and protections that other groups did not have. Um, and so, if you have now Christians who want to be part of the same community with these circumcised Jewish Christians, but they are not being circumcised, then they also won't be uh, seen by the Roman Empire as Jews, and they won't have those religious exemptions. Um, and, and it could potentially bring persecution on the community as a whole. Uh, so that's, that's another possibility here of what we might be talking about. The persecution, in other words, could possibly be from uh, the Jewish community or it could be from the Roman state. Um, either way, uh, the, the logic here seems to be that uncircum having uncircumcised members of the community could, uh, could bring persecution on everyone. And hence, um, Paul is, is saying to them, these people who want you to be circumcised want you to be circumcised only so that they themselves can avoid the persecution that would p potentially come on them otherwise. Um, 
and uh, uh, but the real the real heart of this um, paragraph is in verses 14 and 15. Um, Paul comparing himself himself to them again. He's he said in verse 13, uh, not only do they only want to avoid persecution, but also um, those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh, um, and so that they can brag over you. But Paul compares himself in verse 14 and says, but as for me, may I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what is this uh, subject of boasting all about? Paul has a great deal to say about boasting, not just in this letter, but in others, other letters as well. And sometimes it has been construed as though um, Paul is just against boasting because it's pride, it's bragging, and pride is bad. Um, but it seems to be more than that here something a little bit different. Um, Paul's issue with boasting in verse 14 does not seem to be with boasting in and of itself, with the idea of boasting. His problem with boasting is rather what you boast in. Um, you see, in ancient Rome, boasting was an expected and normal social practice. It was an expected part, something you were actually supposed to do in the eyes of uh, the average Roman. Um, it, was, uh, it was a social norm, so to speak in an expected practice. But the, but, the, but the purpose of it was that what you boasted in declared, in effect, what you placed value in and what you derived worth from. What you placed value in, what you derived worth from. Uh, so what you boast in tells those two things about you. Um, and so for Paul, the, the answer, the, there's only one answer to that question that could possibly be acceptable, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. So his problem with boasting is, again, not in boasting, uh, not with boasting in and of itself, but with what you boast in. If you're boasting in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ, you're boasting in something that um, is, is entirely inappropriate, actually worthless, even if you think it's worth something. Um, the only acceptable thing to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. But Paul also goes further than that here. He's, he adds something onto it. May I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Um, the cross that he boasts in is the very thing the cross of Christ is the very thing whereby his former life in this world, his former relationship to the world has ended. And the cross is the very thing that has flipped his entire value system upside down so that everything that he once thought was meaningful, that he once thought had real value, has now been declared meaningless. You can compare this to what he says over in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, uh, where he, he makes... Uh, he, spells out in, in different words a very, diff a very similar logic. Um, and, and, the, the, and the degree, of course, to which the cross does this, to which the cross flips his value system on its head, is, um, is multiplied 
to infinity, uh, really, by the fact that it is the cross, that it is a cross of all things that does so. This thing that was reprehensible um, to anyone in the ancient world, um, so much so that Cicero said that it was unworthy, the word cross in Latin crux, um, is unworthy to even be mentioned in the ears of a Roman or even set before their eyes. In other words, this is not appropriate subject matter to even, to even say out loud. Um, uh, uh, for, for Cicero, crux was a four-letter word, not only literally but figuratively as well. Um, and that is how the cross was viewed in the world in which Paul lives. Um, and, and it is that very thing that he chooses now to boast in. So in a very real way, uh, the fact that it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ um, really does shatter his former value system and really does declare uh, as strongly as anything possibly could that everything that you once thought was meaningful was all wrong. Um, it's worthless. The only thing that has real value is Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And so faith in Christ, as Paul recognizes here, means, means nothing less than that our former, it means the end of our former existence in this world and the beginning of a new one that is derived from the, the, the life of the risen Christ himself. Uh, you can compare that back to what he says all the way back in 220. Um, but, um, and so hence, the only thing that matters is a new creation in Christ, as he says in the very next verse, 615. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but rather a new creation. See, Paul, in effect, sees here that our problem is much worse than we ever thought, and he's been alluding to this and implying this in different ways throughout the entire letter, but we kind of now see it in full. Um, our problem as human beings is worse than we ever thought. What we need is not simply a better morality or a better religion. Uh, it's not that we need some better status before God, some better, or some better status in this world, whether it be uh, ethnic or social or, or anything else. Um, not even belonging to the covenant people of Israel um, is enough. Um, to, to suffice for, to, to answer the problems that we have, the fundamental problems that we have as human beings. Because as it turns out, even Israel fell short. Um, even the covenant people fell short of the glory of God. So, so, so nothing suffices. Um, not better morality, not better religion, not even belonging to the covenant people of Israel. Our problem as sinful as fallen human beings, the problem of sin is something so insidious, something so much worse than we ever thought that we need nothing short of being remade. Um, we must be remade, and that can only happen in Christ. In other words, nothing short of the crucifixion of our sin, the, the death of our sin through the cross of Christ and new life offered through Christ's resurrection really suffices for the problem that we have. Nothing else suffices to even be called salvation. Um, one of the reasons why for Paul there could never be any such thing as salvation outside Christ 
is precisely because Christ is the only one who has died for sin, for sin and also been raised to new life, and nothing short of crucifixion, of death and resurrection, nothing short of new life, of new creation, suffices um, to answer the real problems that we have. Um, and so, and so that is why neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. Uh, uh, th this is not the problem. This is not the point. And merely being circumcised or, for that matter, uncircumcised could never actually answer your problems. This is why keeping the law even becomes pointless from this perspective. Um, what we need is not a better morality. Keeping the law perfectly still won't answer your problems. Um, so for Paul new creation that he speaks of as the only thing that matters in verse 15 um, is the very essence of salvation. Um, but nothing short of new creation, nothing short of being remade um, is going to suffice for anything because short of being remade, we are quite simply hopeless. We are irrevocably ruined by sin short of being remade in Christ. Um, and because our salvation can only consist of new creation, our Savior can only be one who has died and risen from the dead for us. Hence why Paul boasts only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to end here in just a minute, but as I'm wrapping up this letter, uh, let me just offer a couple final thoughts about what we've seen in Galatians 1 through 6 as a whole. Throughout Galatians, Paul has argued that we have nothing to say for ourselves that would obligate God to give his son for us in any way. Instead, our justification can only be a gift that is motivated only by his love. We have nothing that we can use, nothing that we can say for ourselves to twist God's arm. Rather, our justification is a gift on the basis of his love for us. But if we live only by grace, then we are also to be people who live by grace toward one another. And finally, to do anything else, in fact, to do anything less than to live, um, to live by grace toward one another is actually to deny the gospel itself, which brings us right back to where Paul started in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 6. I am astounded that you are so quickly defecting from the one who called you in the grace of Christ for another gospel. He, is a, he has accused them of doing so precisely for seeking to be justified on any other grounds than the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we've seen that what that means in practice is in part the failure to live out grace toward one another. Uh, and that is... Galatians, and as much justice as I can do it in seven weeks. So, uh, we have a few minutes for questions. So, first I want to thank you, because I found this really insightful. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. You did a great job with this. Are you going to translate another book? <laughs> Which one are you thinking about doing, and why? For, for, for myself, I'm always translating in, um, you know, but uh, when, when I'll have another one that I um, deem worthy of sharing with the general public, I, I'm not sure. Um, probably someday, but I don't know when. Um, 
but thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Um, others? What I'm perceiving as you were conveying the uh, gospel to us about community, and, um, and I'm thinking God wants us to work as a team together to encourage one another and uh, as a team, not, mm -hmm. you know, like thinking more of ourselves than others so we can impart to others encouragement uh, prayer, you know, as a team prayer. Uh, I'm thinking of Bill Bradley who played for the University of Princeton. I read an article about him uh, before he became a, an NBA player. He worked on the court at Princeton for hours and thousands of hours practicing, practicing. And when he ultimately was selected to be an NBA player, he did all that practice so that he could give out to others as a team player. He passed the ball a lot, more than he shot. He guarded, he, he had good defense, he, he was a team player. So it's the same in a marriage or in a church. Uh, that, that's what I believe the Lord's speaking to me about, to be a team player. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's a good thing. Thank you. Um, no, I do think that one of the, one thing that we see, especially by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, in those uh, last couple chapters as Paul works out the implications of grace, uh, there are, of course, implications for the individual believer, um, but Paul also has his eyes set on the, on the church as a whole, on the body of Christ, and um, the Christian life is, is one that is not meant to be lived out uh, in solitary as an individual, um, but Paul's vision is really for entire communities of people transformed together by Christ. Uh, others? Oh. Thank you, Jim, so much for this teaching. It's so rich and careful and spiritually uplifting. And I praise God for the book itself, which is the basis of all that. Verse 17, I, I, we were in the atrium, I got in a little late. Maybe you commented on this in the first part of the, of the class today. But verse 17, where Paul talks about bearing in his body the marks of the Lord mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Do you have any comments on that? That's an interesting text in terms of the history of the church, particularly uh, Francis of Assisi. Um, comments on that in relation to Paul's physical condition when he arrived in Galatia? Sure, uh, thank you. Um, so my, uh, my understanding, my basic understanding of that verse is that Paul is probably talking about uh, the suffering, the, the physical suffering that he's already undergone, um, even at this point in his ministry. I, I think this is pretty early in Paul's uh, letter writing anyway, but, um, the, but I, I suspect he's talking about um, you know, the, the beatings and, and whatever else has happened to him already at this point um, in, in his ministry for the sake of Christ. Uh, now, there are other interpretations that might lean toward um, some kind of um, asceticism, um, as, as though, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there have, uh, 
been those in history that have read this as Paul um, undergoing some sort of ascetic uh, practices, you know, uh, um, physically, uh, you know, as, as an ascetic would put it, disciplining his body. Um, uh, I don't think that's what's going on here, but I'm aware of the interpretation in the history of interpretation. And, um, and then there are, uh, there, and there, there are other interpretations too that I mean, I'm sure that someone um, has associated this with the idea of um, uh, stigmata of the wounds of Christ appearing um, in, a, in a person on their own, um, for which I don't really see any basis in Scripture and, and, and seriously doubt that that's what Paul's talking about here. But my, yeah, my, my interpretation, my, my understanding of that verse tends to just be that he's probably talking about uh, the physical suffering that he has undergone um, for the sake of Christ and, and the gospel at this point. Um, uh, anyway, well, might have, I can maybe take one more question if anyone has one. Okay, well, uh, thank you all very much. Um, I've enjoyed teaching class and hope you've enjoyed it as well. <laughs>